0: Jeremiah 25, 1 to 7. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and And you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves.
1: So imagine being the guy called by God who brings that message. I want to share with you this morning one of my favorite people in the Old Testament named Jeremiah. And from worldly standards, Jeremiah was a total failure. He had a 40-year ministry, one of the longest ministries of anybody in the Old Testament. He had a 40-year ministry and two converts. He spoke God's word from sunup to sundown, this passage says. That word persistently or constantly means from the beginning of the morning to the end of the evening. He spoke God's word and nobody except these two guys believed. He started out life in a rising political kingdom. Actually, there was a lot of hope for Israel at the beginning of Jeremiah's life. There was a good king. The empires around were waning. It might be the time that God would restore his people. And by the end of his life, he's in exile. At the beginning of his life, he's in the promised land. This is what God had wanted for his people all along. He would take them out of Egypt, he'd bring them through the wilderness, cross the Jordan, they would be in the promised land flowing with milk and honey forever, and at the end of his life, he's back in Egypt, where they had been captive for 400 years. One of the commentators says, Jeremiah died as he lived, a failure as the world judges, yet... It was thanks not the least to his words and his life that his people were able to live for God's future. What I really love about Jeremiah is he is an average Joe in the Bible. And in fact, he's probably like a sub-average Joe in the Bible because even on average, people have more worldly success than Jeremiah did. He is kind of the bottom of the bell curve on people in the Bible that saw God do wonderful things. In fact, most of Jeremiah's life was spent seeing God fulfill his word in a way that was really painful and hard in Israel. So what I want to lay out this morning is almost like a bottom bar and to say, okay, if God was faithful in Jeremiah's life, if God took Jeremiah and he was faithful to him in the everyday walking through the worst time in the history of Israel, how much more will he be faithful in our lives now? That's the message this morning is, if you look at Jeremiah, he is a picture of everyday faithfulness in difficult times. And God was faithful to him, and God was faithful to his people in a very difficult time. How much more will he be faithful to us? Now, if you've ever spent any time in Jeremiah, you might have noticed this, but you may not know that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. It doesn't have the most chapters, it's not the most pages, because Psalms has all that space around it you would think it's the longest, but the book that has the most words in it in the whole Bible is the book of Jeremiah, which you'll realize if you sit down and try to read any portion of it, that this is a long, negative book, and it is a long chronicle of people who say they worship God and their actions say otherwise. I mean, you can't read the book of Jeremiah without a little frustration. I'm like, when are these people going to get it? The you read today, he says, I've spoken to you for 23 years, and he's in the king's throne room at this point with all the advisors of Israel, the people that are supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. I have spoken to you all for 23 years, and you haven't taken my advice once. So you read through the book of Jeremiah, and you realize This is not a good time. This is a long and difficult season in Israel. But what I think is interesting is maybe aside from David, we know more about Jeremiah's life than any other character in the Old Testament. We get to see his deepest desires. We get to see him from the time he is a small child until he is an old man. We get to see his longings, we get to see his goals, his fears, his very few triumphs. We get to see his relationships, we get to see him speaking truth to power, we get to see almost everything about his life, and he is a fascinating character because of that. We get the inner world of Jeremiah more than anybody, maybe except David, in the Old Testament. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a few of the things that Jeremiah did. None of them are spectacular. None of them would we consider hugely miraculous. They were just everyday things that every person who follows God is called to. And then I'm going to tell you what happens in his life. So the first thing that happens for Jeremiah is he is called. He is called by God. And if you've got your Bible, we'll be going through the book of Jeremiah, jumping around. And we're going to start in chapter 1. He is called by God in the beginning of his life. He's a small, he's probably somewhere between 10 and 15 he is a young man, and God calls out to him and says, I have a special plan for you. You know, the book of Jeremiah is typically remembered by one verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's what we remember about Jeremiah. The message of Jeremiah could not be more reverse than of that verse as a whole. Now, what I'm going to tell you at the end is that verse comes true in Jeremiah's life, but not the way we would think it comes true. So his life is, I'm calling you, I am bringing you into a special role that I've created. Look at verse five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You know what's interesting about this narrative? It's Jeremiah's calling, and there's hardly anything about Jeremiah in it. So think about this. When, in this calling, we don't learn what Jeremiah had been doing before this. We don't hear anything about his upbringing. We don't know any of his special qualities that he might have. We know nothing about his background. We know nothing about his parents. We know nothing about what was happening in the world around him. But we do know what God was doing. And that's the most important thing in this whole narrative. Is not that Jeremiah was qualified. He really wasn't. Not that Jeremiah came from a great Jewish home that they had trained him upright. He really didn't. Not that he was in a specific place at a specific time with some edge to do what God called him to do because he really didn't. The only qualification for Jeremiah is that God was with him. That's the only thing we find out about his calling is, I set you apart before the ages began. Before you even lived a day of your life, I had a plan for you. I had a job for you. I had a role for you to play in my ministry. When we were having camp this week, some of you parents got to see this, but for those of you that did my favorite part of camp, without a doubt, was drop-off. So we were here for drop-off every day, And the first day of drop-off is kind of funny because everybody's kind of sizing the place up. They're looking, the kids are looking. They're like, there are inflatables over there. It could be fun. And some of them are a little scared. Some of them are excited. And after the first day, the counselors all learn their names. And having worked at Canna one of the things they tell you a million times in staff week is a person's name is the best word in the English language. A person's name is the sweetest thing they'll ever hear. And so you are... You are trained to remember people's names. It is like a key to unlock the relationship you have with them. And so the counselors are studying these lists of their tents. And so the second day when the kids come, right when they come up on the golf carts, the counselors start yelling their names. And they start chanting their names and they start holding up these signs saying, Welcome, we're glad you're here. And the best thing is to stand behind the counselors and look at the kids who are coming, who are having their names chanted and they're running through a tunnel. And people are so excited to see them. They are called into camp and they take off running. It's like day one, they're being dragged. Day two, they are saying bye to mom and dad. They've got their backpacks on. They're running all the way down here to the church because they know what they're walking into. And I just love that about camp because you've never seen more joy than a kid who's having their name chanted and who loves the people that they're about to see. And the picture of that moment is a calling. That's what calling is. It's somebody who sees you and calls out to you and invites you into something that you are going to love. And the fact that you're here this morning means you've been called. Nobody stumbles into God's family. Nobody just finds themselves in the kingdom of God. God calls you. He knows your name. Psalm 139 says the same thing about us that God said about Jeremiah. Before a day of your life was written, I knew you. I formed you. I hem you in behind and before. I saw you before you were even formed. I knew you. Part of the Christian life is understanding that we have all been called by God. We've all been seen on the horizon. We've all had our name called. We've all been welcomed in. We've all been asked to be part of a family and a relationship. And if you haven't experienced that, today's probably the day that your name is being called. And God is reaching out and saying, I want you. To be a part of my family. I want you to be a part of my life. I want you to be a part of my people. I want you to be part of my church. I want you to be part of what we're doing for all of eternity. And so Jeremiah, a young, nervous, preteen, has his name called. And God says, I have a plan for you. I'm calling you into something. And I've prepared a place for you. And I've prepared things for you to do. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, Lord, behold... I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you will go. And whatever I command you, you will speak. Don't be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God had an assignment for Jeremiah in this calling. So one of the things that's true about us is God doesn't just call you and then say, good luck in the Christian life. What he does is he calls you into something, and then he starts to show you that he's actually laid things out for you to do in his family, in his church, in his people. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we might walk in them. And the picture you get of that phrase is not just that he's got a list of good works. It's almost like if you're walking and you have paving stones in front of you. And sometimes you can only see one at a time, but you trust that God has actually paved the way before you. And if you'll step out and you'll follow him, every step you realize there's something else that he has for you to do. That's what it means to be called, is to take that step, follow God, follow Christ, and walk one step at a time behind what he's planned for you. One thing I've learned from Jack Myrick, who's not here this morning, but many of you know, he has this thing called kingdom assignments or God assignments. And I just love the way he explains this to people is your life is a series of assignments given to you by God. And they come with all the resources and all of the things that you could imagine to do them, but you're the one who has to say yes. Yes. And so God has an assignment for you today, tomorrow, the next day, that he's calling you into to walk in. And part of following Christ is just taking one step in front of the other every day, faithfully following God. Now the second thing is, what did God call Jeremiah to do? What did he actually call him to do? We think, oh, he's a prophet. prophet in the ancient world wasn't as much a defined role as it was a couple of activities, hearing and speaking. That's what every prophet does in the Bible. If you look at First and Second Kings, and you have all of these kings, and they're doing all kinds of evil stuff, they're not trusting God, they're not following him, and when they don't, what usually happens? A prophet appears. A prophet comes out of nowhere. Sometimes we don't even know the prophet's name. A man of God appeared from the wilderness and spoke to the king. This is what a prophet does in the Old Testament. They hear God say something, and they speak it to the people that are around them. And that's what Jeremiah did. Anybody that would listen... He speaks what God has been telling him to those people. And sometimes that's about the future. Sometimes it's about the present. Sometimes it's about their personal sin. Sometimes it's about the nation of Israel. Whatever God tells him, he speaks to other people. That's what a prophet does. And you notice at the beginning of this calling, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. And I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And Jeremiah is totally overwhelmed. So God sends him to prophet school. Look at verse 11. He gives him a couple of test visions. He says, okay, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, Lord, I see an almond branch. And the Lord says, you have seen well, for I'm watching over my word so that you will perform it. He gives him a little bit of a run-up to this. So he says, okay, what I tell you, what you see, I want you to tell to other people. Now let's give it a try before you go and speak to kings. What do you see? Almond branch. Okay, good, good, good. You're getting it. And he begins to grow. And before long, these visions are massive. They're about nations and kingdoms and the most powerful people in the world. And Jeremiah is just faithfully taking God's word and telling it to whoever will listen, whether it's the king of Israel or the king of Babylon or his scribe Baruch. Or an Ethiopian who's his only other convert who he doesn't know and never sees again, he tells him God's word too. Hearing and speaking is what he's been called into. And what God does is he begins to direct and form and make uh, little situations where Jeremiah's words are gonna start to carry some real power. And I, I wonder if we think of our lives this way that the things that God has called you to do are all based on these two principles hearing and speaking. Hearing what God says in his word, hearing what he says in the church, listening to godly people, and speaking about what God's done in your life. Telling anybody who's around what God is sharing with you to share with other people. You can build a whole Christian life on those two things. Sometimes we make it so complicated. What is it that God has me do? Well, what is he telling you? What what are you reading? What are you learning? What is he sharing with you now? Share that with other people. You know, most of you probably can remember a time in your life when somebody has come and talked to you about what God is doing in them. And chances are in those moments you didn't think, oh, that was off-putting, that was intimidating, that was, I I didn't want to hear that. Most of the time it's a great confirmation of what God's doing in us. But when you're on the other side and it's like, I think God's leading me to talk to this person, you're like, no, definitely not. It It would be not my place, it might be intrusive. And what God is doing usually in those moments is he's not just working in you. He's working on the other side. And so when he brings these two things together, usually what happens is there's a perfect match of what, he's, what you're hearing and what you're speaking and what they're hearing and what, they're, what you're speaking to them. You know, there was a, a, a neuroscientist at MIT who did a bunch of experiments on multitasking. And multitasking is like the big thing in the productivity literature. If you can multitask, that is just awesome because you can be twice as productive. Well, this guy kind of reigns on that parade. He says, there's actually no such thing as multitasking. There's only switching what you're doing back and forth at a really rapid rate, which means you're not doing anything well. I mean, multitasking is a great way to do nothing very well. And what he says is, this is what happens when people try to listen to something and do something at the same time. You really don't end up doing either. You either switch or you do nothing. And I thought, isn't that a great example of what it's like to listen to God? So this is really practical. Like in the morning during your quiet times, if you're doing something else while you're listening to God's word or reading God's word or, you know, you're trying to pray, but you're also trying to make your list for the day and you're also trying to talk to somebody and you're texting, chances are you're doing neither of them very well. Listening is a single-minded devotion to God's word. And it starts with the time that we set aside in the mornings that we have to fight for. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, focusing on God, learning something from his word, praying a prayer to him, setting aside our hearts and our time to be with him in the mornings. And then the second thing is, sharing is probably not something that's going to accidentally happen to you. It might, you might have somebody say, is there anything that you've been hearing from God that you need to say to me? But chances are that's not going to happen. You have to set aside time to take what you've been hearing, take what you've been learning, and apply it to the people around you. See, this is not glamorous. This is not like something that only prophets in the Old Testament can do. This is everyday ingredients for a faithful life, being called hearing, speaking, waiting. Jeremiah's life can be comprised basically of a long wait for God to do what he promised to do. In fact, one of the people that's written a book on Jeremiah says this way. He he says, waiting for God is like climbing a mountain. And experienced mountaineers have a quiet, regular, short step. On one level, it looks very petty and insignificant. But as they keep up this step and as they ascend, while the inexperienced townsman hurries along and soon has to stop, deadbeat with the climb, the experienced mountaineer continues on. Do you want to grow in virtue? Do you want to serve God? Do you want to love Christ? Well, you will grow in and attain these things if you make a slow, sure, utterly real, mountain-step plod of ascent. Willing to have camp for a few weeks or months in spiritual desolation, darkness and emptiness at different stages of your march in order to grow spiritually. We won't do a show of hands, but I know if we just ask, how many of you have been in a season or are in a season right now of waiting? That's every person in here. Every one of us has wanted to move further than we are with God right now in our life. And whether it's something that's concrete, you're waiting for God to bring something about, maybe it's an answered prayer, it's a healing of a loved one, it's a season of life that you want to get into, or whether it's just the abstract. It's like, I would do what God would call me to do, but I just don't know what he's, I don't know what he's saying. I'm ready, I'm willing, but I'm hearing nothing. The Christian life is often seasons of waiting for God and Jeremiah lives almost his whole life doing this now this is a part that we really don't like because because why would God keep us waiting why would God keep us waiting in fact one of the most common pastoral conversations I have with people is I'm just sick of waiting why isn't God answering my prayer why isn't God doing what he and I both know is the right thing for him to be doing Why is it that God has laid something out and then just kept it a few steps ahead of where I am in my life? I bet you I have that conversation almost every week because God does things in waiting times that he won't do anywhere else. So when we wait, there's a few things that we should remember. Number one, every season of waiting is intentional. Every season of waiting is intentional when you back up a little bit from your waiting, it goes like this. If you trust that God is good and you trust that God is all-powerful, then your waiting must be part of his intentional plan for your life. Sometimes when you're waiting, you feel like God's forgotten about you. Like he's dealing with all kinds of other stuff and he just forgot to keep your life moving along on track. And you step back and you're like, that sounds kind of silly, but that's the way it feels. Or sometimes you think, maybe God doesn't actually want good things for me. Maybe God, for everybody else, he wants them to have great things, but for me, he doesn't have those things lined up. But if you back up and you say, have you trusted God's character in the past? Have you seen God do things that you didn't expect in your life? Then the chances are what God's doing right now is something intentional in your waiting. For Jeremiah, it was something that he was waiting for that actually wasn't a good thing. He was waiting on judgment from the Lord. And why did God wait on his judgment? So we could have this book. So the people could hear what God was going to do afterwards. So that before the Babylonians came in, they had one guy standing up saying, it's not going to be like this forever. God is going to restore you. He is going to change things. He's going to bring you back. He's going to have our kids and our grandkids walk in the light of his favor forever. In our waiting, everything is intentional. Derek Kidner put it this way, for Jeremiah and for us, God's way in general is not to stop the fight, but to stand by the fighter. He is forming a company of veterans, chosen, called, and faithful, of whom he will say, I am not ashamed to be called their God. The second thing you've got to remember when you're waiting is, every season of waiting is an invitation to prayer. Every season of waiting is an invitation to prayer. The point of being in a season of waiting is that our mindset is praying towards getting out of the season of waiting. So it's like, my only prayer request is, God, get me out of here. God, answer my prayer. God, do this. When, and if you're in a waiting season, what your prayer should be is, what am I supposed to be learning right now? What are you doing here? If our prayers are basically, get me out of whatever situation I'm in for our whole life, we miss what God is doing in that specific moment. So if you're in a season of waiting, you should start praying while I'm here, what are you going to teach me? While I'm here, what are you equipping me for? While I'm here, what is it that you're saying that I wouldn't hear if I weren't waiting? God, what is it that you have for me right now that I couldn't learn if you granted my heart's desires? How are you shaping me? How are you molding me? How are you stripping things away from me in this season so that I'll be ready for the next season? And you know what's amazing is oftentimes we pray in such a way, God, would you get me out of here? Would you do this? Would you answer this prayer? And all of those prayers, if they were answered, would lead to a life where we no longer need God. I mean, think about this. If all your prayers were answered, would you be dependent on God? If everything you prayed for just snap, it was done, tomorrow you wake up and everything you've ever wanted was there, would you have prayed yourself out of dependence on God? Because God's goal for us is actually not to give us everything we want so we forget about him. His goal is to give us everything we need to walk with him. That's his goal for your life, is not to give you a bunch of wonderful stuff, it's to give you himself, which is better than all the other stuff. So that when you have him, and he does answer your prayers, you stick with him. That's the point of your life, is to be with him forever so sometimes our prayers are, God, would you do this so I don't have to be as close to you? He is never going to answer that prayer. He's always going to do it in such a way that he gives us our deepest joys fulfilled with himself. With himself. He does that for Jeremiah. Like I mentioned earlier, the most famous verse in Jeremiah, one that we all know, is Jeremiah 29 11. And I want to take you to that passage because we usually quote this verse with just the first few words. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And then we stop. It's like, what's the plan? What are the plans that he has? And we fill in the blank with all these things. And I want want you to see what he says in this passage. He says, when your 70 years are completed in Babylon, so the passage that Kathy read for us this morning is a prediction that Babylon is going to come and the people are going to be exiled and the kingdom of Judah is going to be taken out. And then there's this prophecy. And when 70 years are completed, I will visit you. And I will fulfill my promises to you, and I will bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, and then you will call upon me, and you will pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart." I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from the place I sent you into exile. So what's the plan? The plan is, I'll bring you back. And at that point, it won't be the bringing back that you celebrate. It won't be the restoring of your fortunes that you celebrate. It will be that you've sought the Lord and you found him. You called out and he answered. He answered. Think about the book of Job. The book of Job is basically about waiting. That's why the book of Job is so long. The plot points in Job take up like 10 verses. And then you've got dozens of chapters of thinking about what happens. And Job is crying out to God, why are you doing this? Why why did my life turn out this way? What's going on here? And do you remember how the book of Job resolves? It's not just that Job gets the things back that he lost. That doesn't happen until Job cries out and he says, I had heard, but now I have seen the Lord. Now I have seen the Lord. That's the goal. That's what waiting is all about. I have seen the Lord. And whatever he does after that, Job, he gets all of his stuff back. And now it's not the same, and we have to realize that, but he gets all the stuff back, and what is he still doing? He's worshiping and praising the God that he saw in his suffering. And so for us, we remember with Jeremiah, the plan is not just that you'll come back, not just that great things will happen, but that you will seek God, and you'll find him. You'll call to him, and he will answer you. The last thing that Jeremiah teaches us is the everyday discipline of trusting. So he's called, he's speaking, he's waiting, he's trusting. I want to take you to chapter 32, which I think is such an interesting story about Jeremiah. In chapter 32, the Babylonians have come up against Jerusalem, and we know from the very beginning of the book they're going to conquer the place. So the Babylonians are the most powerful army on earth. They come up, they've reached the walls, they burn the city to the ground, they send the Jews all over the face of the earth. And we know right on the eve of this battle what's about to happen. But God tells something to Jeremiah that I think is so interesting. Look at verse six. The word of the Lord came to me and said, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, so his cousin, is going to come and say, buy a field, buy a field. Well, this field is outside of Jerusalem, it's outside by Jeremiah's hometown, and this guy is going to offer it to him for the equivalent of $17. Now, you might be asking, how is the property value that good for Jeremiah? It's because the field that he's about to buy is where the Babylonian troops are camping to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So you're like, why buy that field? Like of all the places, why buy that field? Why would God come to Jeremiah and say, your your cousin, who, by the way, this is like worst cousin timing ever. Jeremiah is currently in prison, and he's going to come to offload his assets before they flee the country because the Babylonians are there. So he's like, who would be dumb enough to buy my field that the Babylonians are camped on? my imprisoned cousin Jeremiah. I'm going to go and I'm going to say, I'll give you a great deal on this field. Well, God warns him beforehand. He says, what your cousin intended to scam you, I intend to bless you. So he says, he's going to come and he's going to offer you 17 shekels for this field and you're going to buy it. And what's going to happen is after Babylon captures every part of the city and all of that happens, you're going to go to, to Egypt. Your descendants are going to come back and live on this field very field. So Jeremiah has a choice. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Are you going to trust what you see happening, or are you going to trust what God is saying is going to happen? In the darkest moment in Israel's history, the exile is the defining moment for Israel. God calls a young boy who's afraid to speak to pluck up and destroy nations. And the way that he does that, the way that he proves it to him, is the trivial activity of buying a piece of land. What God's doing is he's saying there's going to be one spot in the promised land that stays in Israelite control forever, through the exile, through the Babylonians, and my prophet Jeremiah, against all odds, is going to pay for it. So Jeremiah trusts God, and he buys it. And today, outside of Jerusalem, Three miles north of Jerusalem, there's a city called Anata. It's called Anathoth in Hebrew. It's Jeremiah's hometown. And in 1896, an archaeological crew went there, and they go outside the town a little ways, and they find this plot of land that has a cave on it. And in the cave, they found inscriptions that this cave is devoted to who they call Remia, which for us would be Jeremiah. To this day, there are people in Anata who are saying this is Jeremiah's land. So what Jeremiah shows us, what he demonstrates in his life, is that if you're called, do what God tells you to do. If God speaks something, share it with other people. If, if you're waiting on God, ask him to show you. If he calls you to trust him, do it. And over a whole life, Jeremiah arrives at this promise. And as Mars and Josh come back up, this is where I'll end. He says, after everything happens, behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord. This is in chapter 31, verse 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, that's us. That covenant has happened for you. That Jesus Christ came and fulfilled God's promises in a way that now we can say, because of your spirit, I know you. Because of your spirit, your law is on my heart. Because of your son, I am back with you forever. Jeremiah uttered these words on his way to Egypt. And we have been brought back into the promised land because of his faithfulness. Let me pray. Father, thank you that through Jeremiah's life, there was nothing glamorous, nothing easy. And yet your promises came true in his life. And the promises that you made through him have come true in our life. Father, thank you that there are billions of people in history who have been answers to Jeremiah's prayers. And so, Father, remind us today in a difficult season, in a waiting season, that you answer our prayers, that you fulfill your promises the same way now as you did then. Father, help us to take Jeremiah and remind ourselves you are with him, you are with us. In the darkest days of Israel, you are with him. And in our darkest days, you are with us. You've called us by name, you love us, you are with us forever. We thank you for your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Church, let's respond with worship to the word. Let's stand on our feet. Before we dismiss, I just